invite you to turn to chapter 3 of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be spending uh, most of our time here this morning. I I wanted to let you know, for for those that have been coming to this church less than three years, um, I've got a quick story that I want to share about this passage in particular. This is really one of my favorite texts, and I'm so um, thrilled to be able to preach from it this morning. Um, I did visit this church just about three years ago when I was uh, coming down and seeing if it would be the Lord's will for us to be together and for my family to move down here from Michigan. And I, and I mentioned this story. So if you were here three years ago, you may have um, heard this before, but it's worthy of bringing up again because it has to do with this passage. And um, when I was in high school, my senior year, you know, I was trying to live for God, trying to do the right thing, especially towards the tail end. And it came to that point, some of you seniors maybe have something similar, where you get to write out, um, you know, basically some words to go in your yearbook to be remembered forever about who you were and what you stood for. Okay? So some people thank their parents or friends or write about some memories or whatever, only got a few lines. But I decided, you know what, I really want to honor God and I want all of the hundreds and hundreds of people at my public high school to remember me for something incredibly significant. So I wanted to put my life verse down there. Uh, so I wrote just the reference, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. And that to this day is one of my favorite Verses, it says, um, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. It doesn't matter what I try and do, whatever my accolades or reputation is or whatever I do that's successful, I don't care. I consider that as loss uh, if I have Christ, right? That's what I wanted to be in there. But I don't honestly know to this day if I wrote it down wrong which really could be a possibility. You know, again, I was a senior in high school, so it's like, yeah, what's your favorite verse? Uh, John 3, 15, you know? Like, how do you forget your favorite verse? I don't know. 2 Corinthians something, you know? And I don't know, but for some reason, I either wrote down Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 5, or maybe the 7, they misinterpreted as a 5, but somehow that got put in there. And Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, leads out like this. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I kid you not. So to this day, if any of my dear classmates or their parents or grandparents said, oh, what a lovely young man. I wonder what mantra in crest this man has as the verse of his life. And there it is, Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. Congratulations, man. Way to go. Thanks for sharing that. But anyway, I wanted to share this morning, start out by asking you the question, have you ever noticed how you change as you get older? Okay, and I'm not talking about gray hair, losing hair, like physical changes necessarily. I'm talking about emotional, relational changes that you see happening in your life. The older you get, the more you experience the more things hit you differently. This especially um, came true this week. I was reminded of this concept as um, my son and I spent a rare, you know, we had a rare weeknight evening where there wasn't a meeting, it wasn't something going on. So we went to a movie together, just he and I. And uh, as we got into the car at the end of the movie, he said, Dad, did you know that you cried five times during that movie? 
And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I noticed. I could tell because you were shaking and I looked over and five times he counted for me, five times. So he said, why do you do that? I don't cry at movies. Why do you cry at movies? And so I said, well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, honestly, buddy, I don't really know why these things hit me now. And they didn't maybe hit me because I, didn't, I wasn't always like that. And honestly, when I was 13, I never cried in a movie. But when I was 13, you know, I hadn't experienced true love yet. You know, when I was 13, I hadn't experienced true friendship yet. I hadn't gotten to the point like I did later on in high school and, and definitely in college where I invited people deep into my life and they shared sorrows with me and they shared joys with me. And then when we parted ways, there was a, there was a, a pain that happened because of that. But that impacts you the older you get. I hadn't experienced heartbreak or deep loss yet when I was 13. I hadn't experienced marriage yet, obviously. Bending down on a knee and asking that person to share and connect with you and to join you in an adventure for life, for keeps. And she said yes. And then moving away and starting a new life. And I hadn't at 13, I hadn't had kids yet. And when you have that newborn baby and you're holding them and then you see them grow up and you experience their pain when they get hurt and the joys when, when great things happen like and that unconditional love that you, I hadn't experienced any of that yet. So I think, buddy, honestly, I think it's a combination of all those things over the years that really changes you. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Well, for the Apostle Paul, we need to understand that he was different now than what he used to be like. In the book of Acts, uh, chapter 7, uh, towards the tail end of the chapter, we see what um, he was like before. And he was a very angry, very violent, very uncaring, not compassionate, mean person. The text says that there was a young man, a young preacher named Stephen, and he was out there sharing the gospel, this new way of following Jesus. And some of the people got so angry and so stirred up and so riled up that they actually took, picked up stones and began to throw them at him. And the last thing that Stephen said was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he said, I looked up and I saw the Son of Man standing and I was about ready to enter into heaven. And that's the last thing that he saw before Stephen was killed, murdered. And it says all of the young men, the people that were doing this atrocity, came and they put all of their cloaks and their clothes and their outer garments at the feet of a man named Saul. And that is exactly who has written this book. Because he had an impact, he had an experience, and his life crossed with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he, he was forever changed. So now this man who was so violent, that was arrogant, that was rude, that was mean, that was unloving, all of the sudden is completely changed. And it says, um, you know, in chapter one, several key things that all of a sudden you're like, wow, this was the guy that everybody was afraid of? He's a softy. Think about it. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, uh, Oh, I want all of you guys to know that I hold you in my heart. Now, I'm just curious if anybody during this meet and greet time or when you walked in this morning, some guy, if he saw another guy and said, Hey, Jimmy, 
I just want to let you know, man, I got you right here in my heart. I hold you there. It's not common vernacular, right? But Paul had changed. He also says stuff like, I yearn for you with all of the affections of Christ. I'm so filled with love now and compassion. I use words like grace and peace be unto you. This man who used to be so violent, his life is now completely rearranged. And here in chapter 3, in in verse 1, we kind of reach the point that Paul says to them, Finally, my brothers... And I want you to notice the book of Philippians, four chapters long, right? And this is right at the tail end of chapter two, beginning of chapter three. And he says, finally, he's only halfway done. What does that tell you about communicators and pastors in general? When they say finally, it really doesn't mean anything. No, I'm just kidding. But here's what he says. He's got lots more to say. But finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble to say the same thing to you again. We've been talking about this common theme all throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2 that talks about here's how to be happy, here's how to rejoice, here's how to make the most out of your circumstance. And Paul says, you know what? Because I love you, because I'm changed, because I'm compassionate, I yearn for you and I long for you and I appreciate your friendship. It is no trouble for me to say the same things again. You know why? Friends have to remind each other of important truths. They don't get tired of doing that. And you'll notice in the book of Philippians that there's two things very closely tied together. It's joy and it's strength. Over and over and over again you see that. Uh, He reminds them to rejoice, but he also says, stand firm. And you see all throughout scripture those two things tied together and he wants to remind them of that. A few other passages where that's mentioned. How about this in Nehemiah? uh, The Lord says to the people, go on your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, uh, have a celebration, send portions to anyone who needs it, share with people that are needy. But here's what he says. Um, He says, for this day of celebration is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Those two things tied together intricately. Here's another example. This is David writing. He says, oh Lord, the king rejoices in your strength. And in Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. So here you see Paul in this introduction saying, guys, I love you, but I need to remind you of something. I need to remind you that the joy of the Lord and the strength of the Lord are two things that are intricately connected. And the reason I need to remind you of this is because the opposite is probably where a lot of you are. The opposite of joy is despair. The opposite of strength is is weakness, and maybe for a lot of you, you're confused and you're kind of at the end of your rope and you're feeling weak and I need to remind you of these things. It's no trouble. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. So the way we've crafted the message this morning is uh, here's three reasons um, uh, why Paul gets his joy and strength from God. Three ways that Paul gets his joy and strength from God. And the first one is that Paul recognizes friendship and impact. 
Paul recognized a long time ago that, you know what, in order to really do this, in order to really be used by God, I can't do it alone. And even though we're starting here in chapter 3, verse 1, we do need to backtrack a little bit to reference this. At the tail end of chapter 2, Paul gives uh, two incredible examples of friends and ministries and partners that really made a deep impact on him. And the first one's name is Timothy. Right here you see in verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Notice what he says in verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul says, man, I've been around a lot of people, but I've got one that's my all-star, man. He's Timothy. And some of you will remember that, that Paul invited Timothy, young Timothy, to go on this journey with him. Somebody who he could pour into. Somebody who he could invite along to experience ministry. And Timothy was there in Philippi when this church was started. So he was well acquainted with a lot of these people. And I'll tell you what, in ministry, in church ministry, some of you have experienced this when you, when you work together side by side and when you see God do great things, there becomes a bond and a connectivity between you that can't be mimicked anywhere else. A depth, a priceless relationship. And there was Paul and Timothy and Silas and others that went to Philippi. And you remember that there was just a bunch of ladies that were worshiping together. Those were the leaders. Not in a condescending way, just a bunch of ladies. In a positive way, these women were the ones stepping up, taking leadership, worshiping together. And that's where Paul shared the gospel with them. And Lydia came to faith and her whole family. And then the whole situation with the Philippian jailer where Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. Timothy was there. He wasn't in prison necessarily with them. But he was there. Maybe he was praying. Maybe he was right outside the cell uh, shouting encouragement to him. We don't really know. But at one level or another, we know that Timothy was there with Paul experiencing all of this. And it's important that Paul mentions this. He says, you know what? You want joy? You want strength? It doesn't come from being a maverick. It doesn't come from going solo. It comes from pouring into other people and letting um, their ministry be something that's joyous and an encouragement to you. I wonder sometimes, because they both knew everybody in Philippi, if a lot of their conversations are somewhat similar to sometimes on staff, how we talk about you guys. You know, if there's a situation going on or somebody that's ill or some um, situation of trial and suffering, we're talking about how can we encourage them? How can we pray for them together? And as, as partners in ministry, our hearts yearn for you guys and when you're going through something. And I wonder if Paul and Timothy had that same type of friendship. Because we know from several texts in Scripture that, you know, Paul was in prison. He was in chains. So he was imprisoned. But at the same time, there's a level where he was allowed to have visitors. And Timothy was there with him. And he's saying, man, this guy I want to send to you. We've experienced a lot together. 
And he mentions another guy shortly after that in verse 25. This other man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Now what's interesting is um, his name, he was actually named after a Greek goddess Aphrodite. So he was named after a goddess. How's that for a punch in your man card right there? Like Johnny Cash used to sing about the, used to know a boy named Sue. Right? It's like, okay, man, that's your name. It means loving. Well, that's wonderful. But anyway, somehow this guy was loving. And we don't know all the ins and outs of it. But what we do know is that the people of Philippi sent Epaphroditus all the way to Paul to encourage him, to give him gifts, to pray for him. And it was dangerous. But that's the kind of relationship they had. A similar thing would be if myself or Brian or Matt or one of our other pastors or Adam somehow was on a mission trip and got arrested and thrown into prison and it was dangerous. We're in Afghanistan or Syria or some place like that where they're against the gospel like they were here. And they said, you know what, Brian's over in prison somewhere. It's really dangerous. You could be in prison too, but does anybody want to go over and minister to him and visit him and, and be an encouragement to him? And Epaphroditus said, I'll go. I don't care. I'll go. I love him that much. Those were the kind of relationships that Paul had. Paul said, he's been such an encouragement to me. And he came all this way. You need to honor him because he put his life in danger for the sake of the gospel to be an encouragement to me. He recognized the friendship and the impact that they have. Do you have that this morning? Do you think about how we're going to have joy, how we're going to have strength, how we're going to do this? Do you have those people by your side that you've been pouring into and who've been pouring into you to share the load, to divide the pain and to multiply the joys? Paul said, you know what? Epaphroditus was sick. He was so ill, he almost died. And Paul said, I'm so glad he didn't because I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. I love the language that Paul uses there at the end of chapter 2. Man, I think sometimes, for some, if we never take the time to truly get interconnected with a circle of other believers in a local ch uh, church context, we can come and go and leave and not be seen, and, and it doesn't even make a difference in our life. Paul's like, no, if I didn't have him, I would have sorrow upon sorrow. I love him that much. Number two, Paul understands the stench of self-made religion. How does Paul have that joy and that sorrow? He understands the stench. Well, what are you talking about? Well, let's continue reading on in verse two. First of all, uh, verse two of chapter three, Paul says, look out for the dogs. Now, again, remember, we talked about how Paul's changing. Uh, you know, he was so tender in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And even the beginning of chapter 3, you know, he's like, Rejoice in the Lord. Oh, it's no trouble for me to remind you of all these things. <laughs> Rejoice. It's fine. I love all of you. So filled with compassion. Now, all of a sudden, his tone changes. He's more stern. He's more aggressive. He says, Watch out for the dogs. Now, we need to understand that for many of us, myself included, we've got dogs in our home. We've got pets. They're nice. They're friendly. Uh, they're clean most of the time. They're our companions. But remember, 2,000 years ago, that's not the way it was. These weren't pets. 
These were wild animals. They would bite, they were mean, they were angry, they were scavengers. It's really more like wolves would be the context. And Paul is saying, there is a people group that I really want you to watch out for because they are like wolves. And he mentions some of their philosophy. He says, um, um, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are false teachers that are coming in trying to add all these things onto our list of responsibilities of how we can find favor with God. Now Paul says, all right, well, if you want to talk about the flesh, if you want to talk about doing things in the flesh, verse 4, Paul says, I've got reason, I've got confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, so you want to talk about these people that want to add a list of responsibilities of things to get God's favor, I want to tell you that I've experienced it all. And he goes ahead and throws down his resume. Verse 5, the infamous verse. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul basically lists out four different concepts here. He said, I had the right religion. I was a part of the people of Israel. I had the right family. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Both my mom and my dad were of Jewish ancestry. I was the right family. I was the tribe of Benjamin. I, you know, all, all that pedigree was there. I had the right outward actions. He said, as to the law, I was blameless. Remember, when we talk about the law, it's six, over 600 different rules and regulations about the Sabbath and about what you could wear and about what you could eat and all of the other things that had been established as far as if you're going to be part of God's chosen people, this is the law, this is what you have to do. He's like, I was perfect in that. And then he says, as to zeal, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was on it. I was successful. In that economy, in the things that they valued in that culture, he was all the way up here. But then notice, he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So he's talking here about the idea of value and worth. And in that context, it was pedigree, it was knowledge, it was success in, uh, in, in that realm. For us, nowadays, when we think about the things that we value and what we place our worth and our affections on, for many of us, that's physical things, that's bank accounts, that's how much money we make in a year, all of that realm, right? 
And notice what Paul says, man, these things that everybody works so hard with for, I counted them all as loss. And for us, many of us who have jobs and we're working so hard and we're, we're accumulating value and all this stuff. And like it or not, many of us think about that realm as this is what makes me important. This is what makes me valuable. How much resources and finance I have. Earlier on this week on Tuesday, we talked at Men's Fraternity about the whole idea about giving and money. And, and a website was mentioned that was absolutely fascinating to me. It's called the globalrichlist.com. Global Rich List. Now listen, you can go to that website. You can type in how much money you make in a year. And they've got this formula and this calculation of over 7 billion people on this planet. They will tell you, according to what you typed in and what you make in one year, where you are in that line from richest all the way to the poorest. And so just for fun, I went to that as we're talking about how much we value, what we place our worth in. And I just threw out a number. I just threw in the number. I just typed it in, $45,000 a year. Okay, that's not... To live in this area, I mean, that's not, you know, necessarily enough to sustain for that long, you know. Uh, but I just threw that out there, 45000 Here's what came up on the global rich list from 1 to 100, right there at the top, first place, right in line. $45,000 a year. You're in the top, not just 1%, but it goes beyond that, 0.4. So there are over 99.5% of people in this world are poorer than you if you make $45,000 a year. And then see this one over here? That makes you the 24 millionist. <laughs> makes sense. 24, there's 24 million people on this planet that are richer than you. That's it. Think about over 7 billion, and there's only 24 million, even at that rate, that have more money than you. And so for fun, I threw in 75,000. Let's just see what that is. I mean, again, that's probably what you're going to need or at least to, you know, whatever. So now you're in the top 0.1%. One-tenth of one percent. All those people behind you. There's only six million people that have more money than you. And then just for kicks and giggles, I threw in 150,000 is what you make in a year. Now, that's your percentage. And there's only three and a half million people in the world of seven billion people that have more than you. And I throw all that out there because as you look at that, you know, at some level, deep down inside, no matter what you make, if you type that in, you're like, wow, you know what? I'm still doing pretty good. And when you think about how much time and how much effort we spend and how much concern we have over finances and what that bottom line looks like, I can't help but think how many people stress out between the difference of a fraction of a percentage point in comparison to the whole entire rest of the world. And yet we kick and we're screaming and we're trying to do what we can just to get a little bit closer, just to get closer to that front. 
Paul saying, man, all the physical things in the world, all the riches, all the things that I value, forget it. None of it's worth anything. And as a matter of fact, in your copy of scripture here in verse 8, I want you to underline the word rubbish. If you have the ESV, like I do, underline the word rubbish. All of these things that were once gained to me, all the things that I value, all the items, all the accolades, all the um, successes, I, I consider them as nothing but rubbish. And that word rubbish is a very poor translation. When you think about rubbish, you think about garbage or trash or crud or something like that, and that's fine. But you know what? Man, I told you, Paul uses strong language like he did here in, in verse 2 when he called people dogs. Well, he uses a really strong term right here in verse 8. So strong, as a matter of fact, it's only mentioned one time in all of Scripture. And it's not just garbage. Uh, the real word means um, excrement, waste, poo-poo. But he uses the stronger word for it. Okay, at what level that is, I'm not entirely sure. But most commentators are like, yeah, that's a pretty strong word. So, so strong, in fact, that remember, this is being read to a group of people. So whoever was reading Philippians, you know, they're there. And like, I count it all as, are we allowed to say that? Well, Paul said it, you know, and here it is. It was crass. It was meant to spark a reaction. So why is that? Because it's not just that all of the things that we strive for, all the money, all the successes, all the good works that we try to do in keeping with the law. It's not just that God says, you know what? All of that stuff is um, worthless. It's stronger than that. It's not just worthless. It's repugnant. It's disgusting. It's a stench. In his nostrils. And Paul's saying, man, when I was doing all that stuff on my own, that's how God viewed it. Now listen to me. There's been a lot of confusion about this concept. Right? Because how often have you heard this verse or even in Isaiah 64 in the Old Testament where it says, all of our righteousness is like disgusting, filthy rags. And so we can't do, you know, all of our righteous works, all of our deeds are worth nothing at all to God. How often have you heard that? That's not what this is saying. Okay, if you're a believer and you're a follower of Jesus and you're serving people and you're loving people and you're giving to the poor and you're doing all these great things, that's not disgusting to God. He delights in that. He's going to reward you for that. He's proud of you for that. It's his strength that's allowing us to work and make a difference in the world. What this is talking about is on our own, apart from God, these false teachers, and even in the Old Testament in Isaiah 64, it's people that are trying to gain favor by God by doing these works of righteousness and grandstanding and want the glory for it on their own effort that's what causes the stench and what causes these strong words and finally the third point paul makes it his passion to know jesus he makes it his passion to know jesus all these things that i've gained all these accumulations all this pedigree by itself, I consider that loss. And instead, 
I want to know Jesus. Think about what he says here. Follow along in verse 9. Paul says, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's what he'd been working so hard to get. He says, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That's the kind of righteousness that I want. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He says, man, there, there, there's something pretty amazing that's going on here that you know, all this other stuff that I've tried, it's not working. Instead, I want to know Christ. He mentions that word twice here in this passage. And when you think about knowing somebody and the advantages of knowing somebody, even knowing somebody high and rich and famous, you know, that could be a fun little party game to play, right? Or what's, some, what's the most famous person that you've ever met? Or what's something that uh, nobody knows about you? And who do you know that's got the most, uh, you know, that any, anybody here ever met? Like a movie star or sports star or anything like that? That's something that we talk about and something that can be fun to, to have on our resume, right? Well, I need to share with you that I have had an incredible influence on one person in particular. Um, anybody ever hear of an actress named Anne Hathaway? Been in Dozens of movies, multi-million dollar A-list actress. I need to tell you, around about the same time when I was a senior in high school with the infamous, you know, flub up on the favorite verse, I was also a basketball coach for an eighth grade girls team that my sister was on. And there was sweet little Annie on the eighth grade girls team, Milburn Middle School, New Jersey. She wasn't very good, didn't play very much. She was incredibly dramatic, I will tell you that. But I'm not kidding. I was her coach in eighth grade. And later on, you know, she started to get into school plays and went to these special schools, graduated, went off to college, went to acting school. Next thing you know, she's an A-list actress in, in all these unbelievable films. And I'm just waiting for the day. When there they are at the award show and she gets up there and she's holding it and just says, I want to just pay special homage to my mentor um, in my example, my eighth grade basketball coach, Jerry Hines. <laughs> this one's for you. You taught me how to work hard. You taught me about leadership and how to stick to it. And I learned so much from you. Thank you. Thank you. Music plays out. It's a true story, and that's fun to talk about, man. We know somebody famous. Do I, does she, does she remember me? Undoubtedly. Will she return any of my messages? No. Hey, I'd love to have you a guest at our church sometime, or we got this great project that maybe you could filter off a little bit of that millions and millions of dollars for. But think about how silly that is when we talk about who we know that's got some sort of accolades. When, when here Paul's talking about knowing Jesus. Talk about knowing somebody in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 who was right there at creation as the planets were being formed, as the moon was hung into place, as mountains were being formed and everything else. All creation was happening according to Colossians chapter 1. It says, in him, that is in Jesus, all things are by him and through him and for him. And all things were created and he had his hand in it all. I know that guy. And Paul's saying, man, all this other stuff on earth pales in comparison. And I want you to underline one more phrase for me. 
Right there in, uh, in, in verse 9, Paul says, you know what my joy is? To be found in him. Underline that phrase. Found in him. Here, here to tell you this morning about something called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, basically... There's going to be two sides to heaven, two groups of people in heaven. On this side is going to be Jesus, and on this side is going to be everybody else. And what this passage is saying is, you know, if, if you're a believer, if you've taken that step of faith, it's not that all of a sudden you're, you're good and holy and everything else, so you can stand next to Jesus and you can now be on this side of like all the great, wonderful people. No, it says you're going to be in him, covered in him, found in him. So in other words, when God looks down at all of humanity at the end of time, it's either going to be people that are covered by the blood and forgiveness of Jesus or everybody else. And what's so beautiful about this concept is it talks about righteousness again. It's not everything that we've tried to do on our own, but it's now all of the righteousness of Jesus as good and holy and amazing as he was when God looks down upon us, if we're found in him, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, if that doesn't do it for you, I'm not quite sure what will. Two other verses to confirm that concept for us. Romans chapter 3, apart from the law, um, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, though, is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. It's given to them. And in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, sinful humanity, he that is Jesus made he that is God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him that is in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. I'm here to tell you this morning at this peak, this pinnacle, this apex of the book of Philippians, Paul's argument says, I want to know Jesus more. He's given me so much He's given me his righteousness. Now I want to know him even more. And I'm going to make that my passion. I want to remind you that for where this book was written from, from Rome, most likely, and to where it's going, Philippi, which again was a Roman-influenced colony, for both of those areas... What was unbelievably important to the people there was to pay homage to the gods. Every household that they went into, in the market square, all throughout the cities, there was all these different gods. And it was vitally important that you come to them, you bring them an offering, you bring them money, you bring them food, you worship them so that they can have favor upon you. So you want to have kids? You want to have children? You need to go to that God so that they can bless you and make your wife fertile and give you a child. You want to have a great um, you know, crop of, of, of fruit and vegetable and grains and everything else? You need to go to that God and pay homage and earn favor so that they will bring the rains and make you successful. What Paul is saying right here is that whole system is gone. 
And it doesn't matter how much you try with your meager offerings to go to the God of the universe and somehow earn favor. It's not going to work. That's what's so amazing about grace. It is given to us for those who believe. Imputed righteousness given. God doesn't see my shame. He doesn't see my weaknesses. He doesn't see my failure. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And man, if there's anything that I can plead with you guys and tell you guys to remember as we walk out of here, that's that if you belong to Jesus, you should be bulletproof. Because it doesn't matter what the world throws at you or the lies that the enemy tries to pierce you with. Just say, you know what? According to scripture, I've got the righteousness of Jesus. You can't touch me. You can't hurt me. All I have to do now is walk in that. Let God's power flow through me as I get to know him more and more and more. You'll notice it says I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings. And that's where we get the idea that we've been pounding on for week after week after week is, you know what? Life is going to be difficult. There's going to be situations where you're going to suffer. But man, if we just pictured that as like, all right, Jesus, I know that you did. I want to connect with you in that suffering so that I can feel your power in my life. Because how many people here can testify that unless you go through those dark areas, you're not going to know the power and strength of God to not only walk beside you, but to pull you through? Paul says, that's how I know Jesus more. And I want nothing more in this life. Riches doesn't matter. Accolades doesn't matter. I want to know Christ. And man, if we could make that our prayer this morning, in this place, God would continue to transform us. So I don't know where that lands on you this morning. As we talk about joy and strength and how those things are connected, maybe for some of you, it's that first point of like, man, that friendship, that impact. I don't have that. I don't have those people around me like Paul did. I don't have that encouragement. I don't have that connectivity. And man, do I need that? I need to pour in. I need to be poured into Maybe that's your application point for today. Maybe for some, you've been rocking on this idea of self-made, working for favor of God, trying to claw my way up and get closer and closer to that spot where I want to be. And man, I've been holding up riches or resources or any uh, any of that stuff. I've been holding that in such high affection. And I need to understand that by themselves, those things are a stench and an offense to a holy God. You're never going to earn God's favor that way. Maybe for some here, it's, man, I just, I don't know Christ. I mean, I know about him, but that whole idea of, of really recognizing who he says that I am now, covered in his righteousness, and to be found in him is what I want. Man, I need to connect. I need to know and recognize that that relationship with him is everything and I'm willing to risk everything on it. So whatever it is for you this morning, I'm praying that the spirit of God would provide the power to allow you to make that change. And as we say just about every week, we're here for you for that. 
So if God's stirring in your heart, we want to invite you forward. After that last song, we're here to pray for you. Even if you don't want to say a word, we will just pray over you and trust that God is the one drawing you in and working on your heart. Like Paul's saying, it's worth it, man. I let go of everything else just to have that relationship, and you should too. That's what he's saying to the Philippians, and that's what he's saying to us.